Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're crossing the streams. Every now and then, I like to speak to other podcasters. We've had Richard McLean-Smith from Unexplained, the great Mark Commode from the monolith that is Wittertainment, but this week I'm picking the brains of someone who plays in the same sandbox as me. Agatha Andrews is the host of She Wore Black, a Texas-based podcast of gothic, mystery and horror. I'll let Agatha elaborate on what that combination entails, but let's just say she's the slightly more romantic ying to my dark, depraved yang. And romance is the heart of the matter. It's Agatha's speciality, and we talk about the rules that govern it, the necessity of a happy ending, the prevalence of scars, and the joy of the danger bang, the influence of horror and erotica, and how romance pairs grotesquely and beautifully with the gothic. And she even explains some serious Twitter beef that had me scratching my head this week. On top of that, we share our love of libraries. She explains how a Catholic upbringing led her to horror. And she gives me her unique reasons for not reading House of Leaves. This episode lights up a whole different room in this big gothic mansion we're all exploring together. I hope you like it. Remember, you can support this show on Patreon and get extra bonus content, including my recent run-through of the best hot-weather horror stories. Just go to patreon.com, Talking Scared Pod, and sign up. Many thanks. But now, off we go to the big house on the windswept coastline. Don your nightgowns, light your candles, and let's run out into the storm together. Let's talk scared. Agatha, hello and welcome to Talking Scared. Thank you so much for having me. I love your show, so I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> Thank you very much. This this feels like a long overdue conversation because even though we've only been chatting for a short while on social media, it, it does feel like we've been on a real journey together with this whole podcast thing. Uh, maybe we can discuss some of that in this conversation. But this is also a great chance to talk a little bit about being fans and podcasters in the world of sort of darkly inclined fictions. Oh, yeah. Because we do, after all, play in overlapping sections of the same sandbox. And I, I actually found your show back in May when we seemed to share the same guest schedule for a few weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so to start us off, introduce us to you and to She Wore Black, which is a great name for a podcast, by the way. Tell us about it. Thank you so much. I just love gothic fiction. I love it, love it, love it. It is my jam. I want to eat it out of a jam jar with a spoon. And there's a lot of overlap with other genres in there. So I included mystery and horror in there just because it is a branch of horror, um, but it's a it's a very like gruesome yet pretty branch of horror, and that is very much my aesthetic. So, <laughs> um, yeah, and I mean, mystery is just so much a part of it. And I will be honest, I knew that Sherry Thomas was going to be one of my first guests, and she, you know, with her Lady Sherlock series. So I made sure to include mystery in there so that her fans could find her. Okay, very wise. Yeah, I had no idea about the SEO behind all of this thing. I, I used to work in content and, and marketing, so I should know that stuff. But I, 
I don't. So I, I probably could have done a lot more sort of self-promotion just by picking better words, but I, I had no idea what I was doing. You know what, Neil? I was a librarian. And so like we're used to, when you catalog books, the metadata is how are people going to search and find these books? Mm-hmm. What words have they used to find them? And so really that's where that comes from. <laughs> so. Well, it's amazing that like the amount of people I've met through this this podcast in the horror world who are librarians the, the two that come to mind first of all are yourself and Ali Malinenko from the recent middle grade episode that's right yeah. you are doing the good work libraries are just the most sacred spaces and in, and in the UK they're being decimated by our shambles of a government over the last 12 years uh, and I remember as a kid and I was only talking about this last night actually to my wife I remember oh. every Thursday night going to my local library in my tiny little run down village my deprived village it still had this amazing library with its own amazing kids section and i would go there and like the magic of it of exploring it and finding these books like you know almost the the innocence of it before you knew books by author brands and before you knew really what genre was and you just picked up a book and and the would be one word like vampire that grab you and it it, it felt like true exploration i kind of miss that I, i miss really knowing less about books and the and the magic of it, you know, finding these things that you just don't know about. Yeah, well, you know, kids that little actually know how to find what they want, you know? Like, I mean, I remember my little guy would go to a library and would know, okay, here's the books on emergency vehicles, or here's the books on you know, whatever he found interesting at the time. He knew it's magical when you see it, when, the, when you see the light in the eyes. <laughs> Yeah. Well, well, speaking of finding the books, like me, out of nowhere, you just went and set up a horror podcast where you're talking to all kinds of big name authors. <sighs> what drew you, I suppose, to horror and gothic and mystery and what took you to the darker side of the library to begin with? Well, I've always been there. Um, I was a Catholic schoolgirl, and so we had, I mean, basically every day religion class was gruesome and dark and macabre, and then you'd go to church, and it was gruesome and dark and macabre, and we loved it. (laughs) We loved it. I mean, it was like, oh, who's going to get drawn and quartered today? Um, Who's going to have this gross, untimely end? Oh, okay. And then, like... Our Catholic school was run by people that fled the troubles of Belfast. And so we heard a lot of ghost stories, you know, from our nuns and teachers. On St. Patrick's Day, we didn't have to do anything. It was literally all ghost stories and running around on the playground. Like that was our special free day. So it's always been there. And then I've said this before, and I don't know if you'll appreciate this as much as local people will, but it's very hard to be of Mexican descent and not have like an inherently dark, macabre, (laughs) like just aesthetic in general. And my maiden name means literally to bury the dead. So it's just, it's just who I am. (laughs) Agatha means to bury the dead. No, my maiden name is Sepulveda, which means to bury the dead. Okay. What was the phrase you used before? Beautiful and grotesque? That's what we'll go with that, yeah. Sorry, it seems like I've kind of in a way called your name grotesque. I'd like to retract that statement. I, I didn't really think that through. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I've asked my dad, like, what did we do? <laughs> what, was, what was our ancestry like? Um, yeah. it's, so it's 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 kind of wild, actually. Fun fact, I, I when I was reading uh, Silvia Moreno Garcia's uh, Mexican Gothic, 
my dad and I just kind of looked at each other because we have ancestry like where our, like my great great grandmother is of English descent. She came from England with her family, just like in the book, for their silver mines that they had in Mexico. And so, yeah. Do you, do you know where about in England she came from? You know what? I don't. My husband is very good because he's almost entirely English and he has like his ancestry like listed all the way back into the 1300s. He's from Kent. Okay. But um, like his people are. But I don't know exactly where my, but we're Winsel Doves. So I don't know if that means anything. Winsel Dove. What a name. That, that, I mean, I can see why you've been drawn to Gothic romance uh, with a <laughs> with a name like Winsel Dove in your, your history. So... Before we go any further, because I've, I've pulled a bit of a fast one here so far, because we've basically sat down and had a chat like we're meeting for a, a coffee. Um, it's been very, very friendly. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. And if we were going to talk horror all night, we'd be just basically throwing the things we both know at each other. And, and my audience don't necessarily need that because, you know, they've got both our shows to go to. Instead, I've actually got you on this show to kind of educate me about something that I know very, very little, and that is the romance genre, perhaps the gothic romance genre. Well, I, I imagine we'll get into all of these terminological divisions as we go along, but I noticed right at the start that in that subtitle for your podcast, Horror, Mystery, Gothic, the word romance is missing, but romance does feel when I listen to your podcast, like it is the dead center of your reading tastes. Am I, am I correct about that? It would more accurately be like gothic romance, probably. Okay. And really because romance is in so much gothic. I mean, you can look at Poe. You can, I mean, there's just so many things where there isn't an element of romance in it. But the difference with me is that I'm kind of coming from this world of romance as a genre as well. I was a signed romance writer. And so my publisher, I was writing gothic romance. I was in the middle. I had some short stories published and I was in the middle of my first novel when my, when my publisher had one of those Twitter explosions <laughs> and had a meltdown All right. um, and, and disappeared. And so I, and disappeared literally within 24 hours. It was like one of those kind of situations. Um, and so I was left, you know, trying to figure out what to do. You know, um, and th the truth of the matter is, is that I was always a little too dark for some of their taste. You know, I, I was always, I leaned very hard into the Gothic as a romance writer. I had an audience. There's people that definitely liked it, but that particular publisher, um, like didn't publish stuff as dark as what I was writing, or at least setting wise or, or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but I'm not new to books and I'm not new to podcasting. Um, this is not my first podcast. Uh, so it just made sense while I was trying to figure out what to do with writing and what to do with my romance writing in particular to kind of lean hard into the gothic, which I was already doing as a romance writer anyway. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I just, I, you know, you asked about the origins of the podcast. That's really what happened. I was like, well, what am I going to do? Um, now, I had already been doing a Texas history ghost story podcast where I would look at our history, our Texas history, because we have lots of really weird, strange ghost stories like anybody else. And I would, because I'm the librarian, I would look into 
well, what's the actual history behind this legend or this story? And um, I was doing that, but you know, COVID happened and then Trump happened and it just got, it just got to be a lot less pleasant looking at like, you know, sometimes people don't want to hear their, their proper history. And, and so I just kind of, well, you know what? I was a bookseller, I was a librarian. Let me lean hard in the Gothic, which I've always loved. And, you know, you look at the Hacienda and there's just, I mean, it's dripping. That's the Isabel Canyas book, yeah? yeah? Yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff is my jam. That's okay. Oh, I want to eat that with, you know, put it directly in my mouth and just savor it. <laughs> you know? So it already feels like we've stumbled into this whole terminological thing about gothic and romance and gothic romance and how they're all slightly different things so there's a good chance i'm going to ask some really stupid questions in this um no oh you'd be surprised i find them when you come from the world of romance you're very used to like i mean just look at what happened on twitter yesterday i mean it was you know had had anyone taken five minutes to actually ask a question that nonsense could have been avoided right so. well, well let's jump in with that because as you say you know if you come from the world of romance of any kind it does feel like you're fighting an uphill battle for respect sometime i see that um all the time, all the time on social media but this thing that happened yesterday, it's probably a good place to start this conversation, actually. But can you tell me what's happened? What what was said and, and kind of how do you feel about it? Um, what happened was misinformation. It's a ro- gothic romance call. And everything that they were asking for is 100% in line with gothic romance. So the world of romance was coming to the defense of this publisher because the criticism was deeply misinformed and that the criticism centered on the word Gothic, which can look different than Gothic romance. And so, I mean, Gothic isolation, it's often paranormal, it's psychological, it's macabre, it's all of those things. Gothic romance is all of those things plus a romance. And so, everything that they're asking not to include in the submissions are not going to be things that the world of romance embraces, which include um, like incest and rape. Um, And they had big, big problems (laughs) with the fact that they were saying, we don't want rape and incest. Well, you'll find incest all over Anne Rice. You'll find incest in, in lots of Gothic. It's not mandatory, but it's, it's a genre where you'll see it, you know, mm-hmm. um, sometimes, but, uh, but, but rape is, a, is, a, and some people were trying to be very like, well, I don't want to yuck somebody's yum. And it, that's not the, the case within the world of romance. Consent is always centered. So romance will never accept rape in the genre because that's non-consensual. And we're also coming from a place where, when we started, like in the 70s and even into the 80s, patriarchy would not let romance writers put sex on the page unless it was a rape or at least dubious consent. And people like Nora Roberts and Julie Garwood and some others work very hard to get romance away from that. And we are a very different place now. And so what the call was asking for was a thousand percent in line with 
what gothic romance would would be the so, the problem that the other people had was that they thought well it's just basically going to be you know sex and haunted houses and that the, the problem with the way that that person was saying it is that that's exactly what the gothic romance <laughs> readers want <laughs> yeah, so, so, so let me get this right because I, I think i had this the wrong way around so actually what's happened is someone's put out an entirely reasonable call for stories Yes. But there's a whole lot of self-elected gatekeepers who are choosing yes. to say that the things that are quite rightly excluded should be included. Yes, because they were trying to say that it's basically going to be trite nonsense. So out of interest, were the vast majority of these people who were arguing that these things should be allowed, were they male? <laughs> no. Apparently, and I'm not going to name who it was because the, everyone's going to know anyway, but this person likes to stir stir up trouble anyway. <laughs> Apparently, I have no idea. I'd never heard of this person before, but from what I saw from people who knew who that person was, they said, oh, she's bullying people again. Oh, right. So the, the reason I asked if it was guys or not is because I had this image of... I think of them as bros, you know, like gothic bros, these gatekeepers. Yeah. I imagined all of these guys weighing in that, you know, things should be more horrible, more harsh, more extreme. Because I do feel from a slightly outsider's perspective, like there is a, I don't know what the word is, a sort of assumed hierarchy about gothic and romance. That, that true gothic is in some way more worthy or more challenging yes. or more you know substantial and and that romance is its diluted neutered cousin um that certainly feels like a thing that weirdly even in my academic past when i was studying gothic even at that level of discourse it felt like romance was a you know a somewhat degraded term um is is that something that that you found Oh, every day. And that's why that's why Romance Landia wasn't having any of it, because they're used to this argument. They're used to this. And who are Romance Landia, sorry? Is this the people who put out the call? No, Romance Landia is the name for the romance community. Oh, this really is, honestly, <laughs> I, I am in uncharted territory completely. No, and I should have, I'm usually pretty good about clarifying <laughs> before I say something. So I apologize. You just, it just feels very natural to talk to you, Neil. Um, so I, <laughs> but, um, but no, Romance Landia is what, what the romance community is called. So that's writers and readers of romance. Okay. Um, publishers of romance, everybody in that world. Um, you know, we say the horror community, but like romance just says romance landia. They um they are very, I mean, especially every like Valentine's Day, we all have to brace ourselves for February because you get a million think pieces that try to say, well, you know, let's tear down romance in some way, shape, or form. And um and it's exhausting because it, Aside from the fact that it's misogynist, it's also a home for like the LGBTQ community. It's also, you know, um, it's a place for joy where people feel like, well, let's tear down anything that brings people joy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just there's the misogyny is the worst part, though, because and the thing is internalized misogyny. You know, women who degrade it, too, because they think they have to and they've always been taught that that's the way to look at it is also a thing. Um, and so I, you know, it is exhausting. Um, 
the thing of it is, is did you read the Hacienda and think that it was like lesser? You didn't, you know, it's a smart book and, and she reads romance Mm -hmm. as much as she reads horror, you know? So I want to come back to that, but it's key to one of the things that's sort of, you know, intriguing me about this whole genre Venn diagram that this seems to center on. What I'll say in response to the thing about, you know, bracing yourself for a, a, a wave of op-ed mm-hmm. pieces that no one needs. The only thing I can compare that to from my world, and it, it doesn't carry the same stain of misogyny, but is that every time you see something called an elevated horror movie, oh, oh yeah, rides me up the wall. It, it's starting to make my oh, me think yeah. violent thoughts because you know, <laughs> I don't care how anyone tries to, you know, recontextualize that that category or or redeem it. There is no way to say that something is elevating without saying that something else is lesser. It's just, you know, it's built into the statement. And I just think, mm-hmm. it, it, and, and that's just a, a thing that we hear now and again from a, a, about a genre, which let's face it, is doing pretty well and is pretty well supported. So I can only imagine the anger that you, you must feel when people try and oh, it's dig their Yeah. Exhausting. I mean, yeah. So we bring in about 25% of the entire publishing industry as far as money goes. Um, So people saying, well, it needs to be shaken up. It's like romance is doing just fine. (laughs) We don't don't need to worry about that. But the other thing is, I mean, even if it, it it shouldn't have to make that much money to declare itself a valid genre either. Um, It is, it has a lot to do with, you know, mis- misogynistic conceptions of mm. what's going on in that genre, which is why, like, I've had such a spectacular response to my Anne Rice episode with Josh Mallerman because he was so open and genuinely liked the romance that he had come across. He asked me for recommendations. He sends me pictures of, of books he's picked up that I've recommended to him in mm-hmm. the genre. I mean, he was just so like, I love, you know, Bridgerton. And he was like telling me about all the different character things. And that's what people are missing. It's like, when you open yourself up to it, you'll find interesting things there too. I mean, I just went to go see Michael Seidlinger. Seidlinger? Yep. I'm just, I hate that I'm saying that. Uh, Seidlinger, get my, my most yeah. recent guest. Episode went live <laughs> last night. <laughs> well, I just went to go see him on Monday and um, we were talking and, and he, I think kind of about this. And I just brought up the term danger bang. And he was... <laughs> super intrigued you know? and he was like Does, is that what I think it is and I said it's exactly what you think it is and it's fantastic and he I, was like I want to know more tell me more can you I know? just say a few things right a few things to come back at you on that before we get into like, we'll get into some stuff soon that isn't just me and you chatting but one jo- Josh Malaman is just a great guy and I can't let my I cannot let another episode devolve into me rhapsodizing Josh Malaman but yeah he's the best guy isn't he and two, every week I try and pick out a sort of pithy phrase from this conversation to, to, to give it the title. Danger Bang will definitely be, <laughs> be featuring in the title of this episode. Um, I don't quite know I'm the so sentence structure yet, but it's, it's going to be there. Yeah, that's great. I, I hope that it is because it is freaking fabulous. So <laughs> yeah. I love it. I love my, I love the genre. There's just, I mean, and I don't know, you can tell me this, 
because I know that like in the world of romance, people will come to it and say, like have a specific request of their mood. And maybe, I mean, I know some horror, like I know like the world of Gothic horror very well. I don't know, like one of the reasons why I never talk about things like splatterpunk or body horror is because I don't have the language for it. That's not what I read. So I I don't want it come to something uninformed and like, well, mm-hmm. let me talk about this, you know? Um, Cause that's not, I'm not going to do that. But um, this is, this is why people, I've said very little in this episode so far. <laughs> <laughs> people come to you or any other people in the community with specific requests, the way that ro- romance fans do. So like a romance fan may say, Hey, I'm looking for a unicorn shifting, you know, dark romance, or I'm, I'm looking for, you know, a scarred hero, um, Scottish romance. Like, do, do, do people come to horror that way? Like, here's the tropes, here's the characters, here's the settings that I'm looking for. Give me some books in that. Like, yeah, I don't think it's quite that specific, but I, I get emails all the time asking me to recommend books. It often centers on extremity and you know asking saying like I've got a a friend who wants to get into horror but they don't know where to start or the opposite spectrum I I really want to challenge myself with something truly disgusting or or truly depraved and 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 Mm. no matter what I'm asked I promptly forget the title of any book I've ever read in my life um and I have to go and think about it but yeah I, I do get it and I know people like Sadie Hartman get it all the time um like the, the work she does just in recommending books for the community is incredible. But yeah, so yeah, I think people do. But I, I also think with, with horror, there's a, I think people have sort of comfort zones and comfort niches, you know, and, and often more, more, more importantly, discomfort niches where they just simply will not read about something. So I struggle recently with anything that features animal cruelty. Um, oh yeah. I never used to. No, I always struggled with it. Always used to find it difficult. But now that I've got Ted, I literally can't contemplate reading it. My, you know, you may not know, but my listeners know that my my favourite book is It. And one of the things that I'm really worried about is when I next read it, there is a scene quite late in It in which a truly awful thing is done to a puppy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure I'll ever be able to read it again. Um. So I think a lot of the time people come to me asking for things that are either spectrum to spectrum, really extreme or really mild, or they'll, or they'll say something that doesn't have this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know? uh, I am one of your listeners, so I knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to presume. Let me jump in because I'm realizing we've talked for half an hour and we're yet to really define anything we've talked about. So yes. this, is, this is where I'm going to learn. Right. And I'm going to try not to impose the little bit that I do know. I'm going to try and just be quiet. Romance, gothic romance, etc. Romance and gothic have got a really interesting history. You know, they intersect and they bifurcate and they entwine each other. And that's gone on for centuries. Now, I've got a really good grounding in the very earliest meaning of the phrase gothic romance. But when it comes to the 20th century or anything post de Maurier, shall we say. I'm completely ignorant. So after half an hour, probably a little belatedly, can you talk us through a little bit about what gothic romance specifically means, at least to you? 
All right. Well, I'm happy to do that. And I think, I mean, you know, we were fascinating. I don't know. Don't worry about the first half hour. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, basically it's, it's a romance in the context of Gothic tropes, Gothic setting, Gothic stories. Um, and what people confuse, and this is why I don't actually mind when people ask me questions whenever these things blow up on Twitter, if they have a genuine interest, mm-hmm. because it can be very confusing when you have a history of like tragic romances in the world of Gothic. So you have people like Poe, who in his nonfiction essays on the craft, writing, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's something I've quoted several times, but where he's writing, you know, the death of a beautiful woman is like the best kind of story. (laughs) Um, Or it's something along those lines. And I think it's something like nothing is as beautiful as the death of a young woman or something like that. Something that would, should raise alarm bells really, but. Well, but I understand what he's talking about because look, I love Poe and I love pre-Raphaelite paintings. You know, I, Ophelia is like dead in the painting, but I love that painting. We all love the Lady of Shalott. I went to England with the express purpose of going to the Tate to see those things. It's not like we don't have an interest in those stories too, but the stories we're looking for in romance, in Gothic romance, have happily ever afters. We want the happy ending. Um, so the Hacienda is not a strictly Gothic romance. It's very sexy, um, but, you know, it's not strictly an HEA. It's also not. It's a vague ending. So, you know, there's room. So romance fans have liked it anyway. But um, so when you have a romance, what happens is the connection between a couple and how that either they have either internal growth or maybe what the conflict comes from, maybe external, maybe it's, you know, some like forces or people working against the couple. Maybe it's, um, you know, maybe the hero or the heroine has like something to overcome within themselves before they can be a whole person to find love. And people might think that's trite, but think about Neil, let's, let's take you as an example. Okay. You have a gorgeous wife who's supportive of you, who's smart, who's this, like anybody on the planet would be lucky to have her as a partner. So think about how it made you feel when you were fine falling in love with her. Is that not an extraordinary high when you think about like, your first kiss with her, your first date with her. Is she going to be interested in you? Is she not going to be interested in you? What is it about yourself that, you know, you think is worthy of her love? Like all of those things, what is it about her that, you know, she's worthy of yours? You know, all of those things are interesting and exciting. Is she going to, I hope she's okay with me using her as an example. Oh, she'll <laughs> love it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to let her hear this episode. It was, it's far too flattering. <laughs> You better let her. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, that was an extraordinary time of your life. Mm-hmm. And people enjoy that, you know? Also, there's a lot of times what you'll find in Gothic romance are like new beginnings. So you might have um, a person who has gotten out of a toxic relationship, is finding themselves like kind of 
becoming whole within themselves before they're allowing themselves to be whole for somebody else, you know? And so the journey to that person is the journey within the main character or something, you know, kind of coming to terms with, with their past and who they are now and where they want to go and be. And there's all kinds of fascinating stories that you can come in with that. So, you know, maybe you'll have goats, maybe you'll have an inheritance, maybe you'll have, like really frightening relatives that are trying to destroy you so they can have all the things that you've just, you know, gotten. You're always isolated. Um, Isolate. One of the reasons why I'm so drawn to Gothic and Gothic romance in particular um, is that I'm an only child. And so I, and I, I mean, my parents were very young when they had me. So they were working and going to school the whole time I was growing up. And it, we, I'm Gen X, so I, like all the other Gen Xers, was left alone a lot. And so I spent an enormous amount of time in my own head. And so I understand the isolation of Gothic characters more than any other genre. And so when I find someone else, like when I found someone else who saw me and as isolated as I always feel in life, like that was magic. Mm -hmm. You know, finding my husband was magic. And so I like seeing that in a story, you know, it's exciting. So there's the happy ending thing. Is it happily ever after H E A? I I had never Mm -hmm. seen that, that, that acronym until yesterday. And my Twitter wall is now full of it because of this (laughs) controversy. So it's absolutely true then that there can't be a Gothic romance without a happy ending. Are there any exceptions that prove that rule? No, no, no. So you've just reminded me on something I meant to say, but okay. you know, ADD brain, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So the Poe thing being confusing, it, there is a lot of stories with romantic elements that are not a romance genre because they don't have the HEA. So a lot of times people will ask, genuinely interested, ask, well, what a, is it Weathering Heights? I like, I like Gothic romance. I like Weathering Heights. That is a toxic ass relationship <laughs> with a shit ending. Like the thing of it is, it's a great story for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I love my favorite like, British novel. I love that the Brontes were like, let's see how salacious we can be, mm-hmm. you know, and, and they're whipping out these dark stories that with tragic love. Those are great, but they're not romance. Like I, no one in the world of romance or gothic romance is saying that those stories don't have value or that they're not good. They're just not romance. You know, they have romantic elements and that there's a love interest but they don't end with the happily ever after. So they're not in the genre, but it's not like we don't love those stories too. You know, they're just not that genre. Sure. So it is that happy ever after that is the absolute core component, a kind of positive outcome. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes. Okay. Well, that seems surprisingly straightforward as a a definition. It's Um, so simple. It's so simple. (laughs) I'm really fascinated by definitions, right? I want to get into this for both romance and the gothic. Um, I was listening to your conversation with P.N. Hinton, and I was really startled when you talked about the relationship between vampires and the gothic romance, particularly when you said that you don't consider True Blood the Charlene Harris series and the TV series, that you don't consider that to be gothic romance because to me before speaking to you it seemed absolutely a textbook definition what am i not getting 
I think it's more erotic because it's about her own personal journey. Although apparently, and I didn't finish the series. I read like 10 of them. Apparently she did find a relationship with someone, but everyone in the world of romance is furious at the way that that story ended. Um, But so erotica and romance are different things. Um, Erotica is an, and she would never categorize her stories as erotica, but it is more in line with that. And that erotica, erotica is a personal sexual journey. Um, and you don't even have to have like sex on the page for it to be counted as erotica. If the main story is about a personal sexual journey, um, you know, she starts as a virgin and makes her way through quite a few men, mm-hmm. you know, before arriving um, at the series end. I don't remember that conversation that you're talking about, but I stand by that in, in that. Um, I mean, she did find her person, but it's not the person everybody expected, I guess. So in romance gets very mad about that, but um, I would consider that more of a sexual journey, so more in line with erotica than romance. Romance need is a, is about a you know between a couple, a thruple, however many people are going to be involved in the central relationship romantically. Um, because romance is very open minded, I almost considered telling you to tell people to put their their earphones in just in case we go down like a, what a romance conversation would really sound like. <laughs> So, I don't know if we'll get there, but you know, the, the, the relationships are central in a, in a romance, a personal sexual journey is central in a erotica. Okay. You, you're nailing these pins then one by one. Um, cause the reason I, I think that actually proves your point about people's misapprehension of the genre, because when mm-hmm. I heard you say true blood, I thought in really crude terms, I thought, yeah, that's got horror tropes and it's about people fallen in love therefore it must be gothic romance but i get now that it's more nuanced than that so here's a thorny question bringing up gwendolyn keist because she will be on the show i think the week after you um which is beautifully fitting um <laughs> her book reluctant immortals is basically a kind of meta textual take on on what if Dracula and Rochester came to modern day San Francisco and were, and were defeated by their female victims. But it's a very playful book. And I don't think anyone would call it romance. It's a horror novel, you know. But it has got me thinking, working within these pretty prescriptive tropes that, that gothic romance has, is it possible to be playful and experimental? Is it possible to deconstruct and parody and all of those things? Or does that break? Does that break the uh, the game, so to speak? Look, ro- I don't know if anybody understands. Like, romance has a massive sense of humor. Um, we're not, you know, angry angry writers. You know, we, I mean, we are sometimes, just like anybody else. But look, we we, I mean, the whole concept of a rom com especially self reflective ones, will do that. I mean, one of the biggest movies of this year was that when that rom-com with Sandra Bullock earlier in the year and throughout that entire movie, it's like a reflection of, of what it is to be a romance Mm -hmm. writer or what a romance is. And you have people like Emily Henry who are massive bell selling, very talented romance writers who like 
you know, uh, I think it's Beach Read, um, is a, it's a story between a romance writer and a horror writer. And it's a romance between them and they swap genre writing. Like he write, he wants to write, he tries to write a romance and she tries to write a thriller so that they can understand each other better. Okay. Like there's, cool. there's all kinds of amazing self-reflection that happens in the genre already. Like we're totally capable, <laughs> you know, of doing that. Yeah. Cause I think from the outsider's perspective, it does often wrongly for what you've said, feel like quite an earnest, like I said, quite a prescriptive genre, which weirdly is exactly what people who don't like horror say about horror. You know, they say, oh, it's just men with axes. Oh, it's just this. It's just that. And of course, there's, you know, a multiplicity of of um, stories and stories about stories and you know, all of that sort of stuff. So it's good to know that that, that the romance genre is, is equally capable um well look at mystery i mean you always solve a crime mm -hmm. you know the thing is is that a romance can happen you know every possible like that the, there is no limit to what people can do in a romance you know just the same way there's no limit to what people can do in a mystery mm -hmm. or a horror you know like it's just amazing and i am i am perpetually like when I say, when I say that they're looking for specific things, like I'm not joking when they'll say like, I'm looking for a unicorn shifter scarred hero, like, you know, they will, and there will be books for it, you know? <laughs> and so it's just amazing what people come up with. Okay. Well, let, let's take this darker a little bit because we've talked about romance. Let's talk about, I suppose, the Gothic part of that equation. So explain to me how dark can a gothic romance be? Even with its happy ending, I suppose, how dark can it be before it becomes something else? So I'm thinking of example, Rebecca or Jane Eyre. You've already dispensed with Wuthering Heights. Um, more recently, things like Isabel Canyas, which is in, that, the Hacienda is an incredibly dark novel in parts. Yeah. Or Simone St. James, who, you know, really goes into some pretty horrific places in, in some of her novels. No, she's my first example of someone who walks both worlds beautifully because she does read a lot of romance. She's one Arita, which is the Romance Writers of America. Y'all have the Horror Writers of America. Now, uh -huh. Romance Writers of America is a dumpster fire of racism, but they <laughs> did. <laughs> that's not Simone St. James's fault. So when she won the Rita Award, um, you know, for The Haunting of Maddie Claire. I mean, that book is terrifying, but it's very sexy. She has sex on the page. It it, it does have a romance in it. As, and it's, I don't mean as like a, a, just a peripheral thing. Like it is a specific person and you are following that relationship as much as you're following the ghost story. And that's Simone St. James. But the thing is, is that every Simone St. James novel has a romance in it. This last one she did not quite as much as the others, but she has a romance and she has talked about this with other people too. For us, when we get into scary, terrifying romances, because those have been around for decades, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's the romance is the thing that makes us feel safe as a reader. We know they're going to get through it and they're going to be okay. You know, so that's like, if I read a Simone St. James, I know that I am safe as a reader. If I read a Hester Fox, she might terrify me, but Hester Fox is also going to make me feel safe as a reader because I know that she's got that romance in there and that's how, like, that's important to her, mm -hmm. you know? And Hester Fox has actually said, you know, 
she goes, every person, people in every genre would benefit from reading romance because the character development and the plotting are so like you, you have to net, like up your game. I mean, they're just such, it's a craft like anything else, but people do not realize how much character development really goes into romance and how much, you know, your story has to really be developed in order for it to be successful. Like anything else, there's going to be people that don't write well in that genre, but, <laughs> but the ones that are good stand out and people know who the good ones are. But like Hester Fox and Simone St. James are great examples of people who can terrify us and and make us swoon at the same time. And there's a whole branch of romance that I don't even touch called dark romance, where let's say it's between a, a man and a woman, where the hero might be like a terrible person for everybody else in the world, but for her, he'll he'll do anything. And for her, he will be like a perfect partner, a perfect person, but like that's where you get a lot of like mafia romance, oh, like that kind of okay. stuff, where okay. it's like a, where it's a dark. Everything about that person is dark, or everything about the setting is dark. Everything is it could be terrifying, um, because the thing is, is like a lot of writers also write both. They but they'll use two different names. So you will see a lot of people in in the romance genre writing really scary, terrifying stories that center a romance as well. But like I, Simone St. James' Haunting of Maddie Clear, like absolutely scared me. <laughs> you know? Like, have you read that one? I haven't. No, I've only read Sundown Motel and Book of Cold Cases. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, I've only read those two, um, and I I did like them, but that's why I was a little bit baffled. Um, by thinking of her as a romance writer because they do seem to be much more in the thriller um, category. The, the romance feels fairly peripheral in those two. I'll be interviewing her later too, and Gwendolyn actually, but, um, you know, that is something I've heard her talk about with, with some other people though, as far as like, and Isabel Cañas told me that she had that conversation with Simone St. James as well, where you know, it's feeling safe as a reader is like that romance helps us feel safe as readers yeah. so that we can keep yeah. going. Because if I, I'll be honest, I, I am that horror reader where I will, if I'm not certain where we're going to wind up, I will read the end before <laughs> I read the rest of the book. And the journey will be exciting for me regardless, because I'm safe as a reader, you know? Let, let's talk horror then. Let, let's talk true horror what are your tastes? How dark does your reading and your viewing, if you if you want, how how dark does it get? Well, I mean, it just depends because, like I said, we all have things we like, right? I don't like body horror. I don't like splatter anything, and a lot of that probably has to do with just being a kid from the eighties, where that was just you know, slasher was mm -hmm. everywhere, and it just wasn't my jam. But like, I love, I love gothic. I like. I like horror that's pretty and I'm mm. not sad about it. Like, I mean, people can shit on that all they want to, <laughs> but I mean, you know, I was talking about this with Paulette Kennedy, who's a beautiful, beautiful Gothic writer. Um, and she's like, you know what? I like women in, in white dresses and in creepy houses. And I'm like, yes, me too. <laughs> and that can be, you know, but, you know, I'm very drawn to ghosts and haunted houses. And, you know, I like Grady Hendrix, too. I mean, he's fun. Um, but I, 
there, I was talking a little bit about this actually with, with Michael Seidlinger. There's something about haunted houses and ghosts and all of that where it, it's autonomy. It's a subject of autonomy. And I'm just living my little Hufflepuff life over here, like with my little plants and my little son and my life. You know, like, your danger bangs. <laughs> danger banks are a big thing. I mean, people love that. Like that's one of the things that people also didn't understand too, by the way, is that sex in a romance has to have a purpose. I mean, yeah, you can throw sex in there, but you can tell like a lot of people will just skip past the sex scene if it's not done in a way that moves the story forward because it's not interesting. Yes, you know, it's completely. just sex. It's got to be character. You know what I mean? It's got to be a character model. Exactly. Yeah. So well, V Castro is one of the most brilliant examples mm-hmm. of someone who does that well. Now she is more erotica. I don't. I think I've ever read any of her stories that are a romance, as in a relationship is centered with the horror. She is a horror, like erotic horror. Whereas, because like her stories will center like a sexual journey for a character or mm-hmm. characters. Um, but she's brilliant. I absolutely love what V Castro does with with merging these two things. Yeah, I only read her Queen of the Cicadas. Um... I'll be honest, wasn't blown away by it. Goddess of Filth is probably the best example of what I'm talking about because it's a longer story for one, but that is a perfect example of something that is absolutely a sexual journey, is 100% about autonomy um, and independence and, and kind of reclaiming our place. I mean, you know, I also identify with that. I mean, I she san antonio is so close to me like geographically as well as the people that populate that town so i understood that story also in a visceral way Mm -hmm. yeah um but as i do with all of her stories but um but goddess of filth is probably the best example i think in the horror world um of, of what I'm seeing with that. Although, to be fair, I've not read any of Haley Piper's and that that is on my agenda. Because one of the things that I say all the time is that horror and romance really need to talk to each other because romances actually have thriller, horror, dark elements, like as subgenres for decades. But people in the horror world are very interested in bringing romance into their work, but they're not reading romance. And you can tell, like some of them do, and you can tell who does and who doesn't. You can tell that Isabel Gañas reads romance because of the way she wrote it into her story. But you can also tell when someone just wants a sexy horror story (laughs) and is trying to make it like work and it's not working. (laughs) So you know, people, people just really need to talk to each other. I think that blow up on Twitter wouldn't have happened yesterday if people in the horror world had any concept of what romance is or does and, and its purpose, you know, before trying to speak about it. That's Twitter in a nutshell. And to go back to V Castro and Haley Piper, I've yet to read anything by Haley. Um, but she's coming on the show quite soon. I'm going to read her new one, No Gods for Drowning, which sounds amazing. With with Violet, with V Castro, I, I really didn't love the book I interviewed her about, Queen of Cicadas, but everyone who I respect is telling me her stuff is is kind of, you know, right in the zeitgeist of all of this stuff. So I do need to read yes. The uh, Goddess of Filth because it's, it's had nothing but praise from people I respect. So, yeah, I will get on that as soon as I get chance. 
uh, and I'll try and get her back on the show because she's a great guest as well. Let me ask you to sort of finish off a question which has got absolutely no relevance to anything we just talked about, but I'm curious because it's it's something I care deeply about. Um, in one of your episodes, I can't remember, I, I've kind of binge listened to a lot of them, so I can't remember who the guest was, but you, you basically said that you ha- you had yet to read House of Leaves and you gave quite a humorous reason. <laughs> I was hoping you didn't hear that part. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It's fine. Your your reasoning for not reading it made me laugh because I actually kind of agree with you. But can you can you elaborate? <laughs> yes. Oh well, you know what though. Like I said on the episode, I said you know my reasons for not reading it are just silly, and I understand that they're just silly, but. I have to say, and I will tell you the reason in a minute, I have to say that that answer that I gave that you will hear in a moment comes from a place of not just being a woman, but being a brown woman. So I had to spend most of my academic career reading books that had absolutely nothing to do with me at all, to the point where I felt erased culturally. I felt like I I was nothing. I mean, literally nothing is the word that I used to describe my place in the world for a long time. So when I started reading women writers or particularly brown women writers, I found home. I found something I connected to. And that happened before House of Leaves came out. So that when House of Leaves came out, I was doubly like, oh God, (laughs) to, to, because I was working in a bookstore at the time and everybody who was coming in and talking about house of leaves and looking for house of leaves were like bro dudes, the bro dudes <laughs> with their, with their wannabe chili, red hot chili peppers, tribal tattoo. <laughs> and they're just talking about how fucking awesome it is. And it's just, I wasn't there. I just wasn't there. And it just every, every single, and they're the guys who like hit on all the girls that work at Barnes and Noble. And you just kind of, you're back, you know, (laughs) and you just, it makes you not want to read it. You You are not wrong. You are not wrong. I have met my share (laughs) of those people. I always describe house of leaves as infinite Jess for goths. Oh God, infinite Jess. Oh Lord have mercy. It is that thing, isn't it? It's that thing where it's like people read it so they can say they've read it and so they can be smarter than you because you've not read it. And and even Daniel Lewski himself, who I'm trying to get on this show desperately, um, he said, I think the most obnoxious thing any writer has ever said. He said that anything that anyone interprets or sees in that book, he has already thought about. And I just think, well, that's it's not a great start. But that said, that said, it is a it is a truly wonderful book. And Daniel Lewski himself says that it is it is at its heart a love story. I've never quite known what he means by that, but perhaps yeah. you can find something in there that I can't. But yeah, it, it's not a beach read, put it that way. I um Well, what I love about romance though also is that we are just fine with if we want fluff we we want to read fluff if we want a more serious or dark romance that's what we'll go for but we that like we we are just so reveling in our our joy for the books you know and that's kind of where I was coming from with the house of leaves thing is like with romance we just sort of celebrate the joy of reading because we've already been forced to read all the Dostoevsky and 
other things like that, that we just, okay, we've already done that. We want to, we want to enjoy ourselves now. (laughs) I hate the phrase guilty pleasure because it's an oxymoron. It's a stupid thing to say. We feel nothing. (laughs) We feel, we feel nothing but joy. There's no guilt at all. Well, here you go. What a perfect segue, because I'm going to ask you to recommend one book. I know, ah, that's, uh, I know that's difficult. What I will so say, I'll throw, you, I'll, throw, I'll throw you a lifeline because you've said a lot of titles and a lot of authors during this conversation. So if you want to send me a list of those authors and books, I will make sure that they all make their way into the show notes for, for interested re- uh, listeners. But for now, for the purpose of this format, can you recommend one book that you think my listeners should read and tell us why? I'm not cheating when I tell you that I'm going to give you a book, but that I'm also going to give you a heads up on something because I think it'll be helpful to anybody listening. Okay. Um, The one book I will suggest to your readers that I think will make you happy and romance happy is The Haunting of Maddie Claire by Simone St. James, which I did recommend to y'all already. Um, Great scares. Uh, It's a scarred hero. It's isolation, a barn, scary ghosts. Um, you know, Danger Bangs, the whole thing. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. And Simone St. James is an excellent writer. So we already know that. And I think that she's familiar enough to your audience to say, well, okay, well, I'll try that one. You know, okay. So that's the one I would recommend to everybody. Okay. I will say that I'm going to have as a guest, Diana Biller, who is one of my favorite Gothic romance writers. Um, Diana Biller is going to be talking about the craft of writing Gothic romance on my show. So like, she's not going to just be there to promo a book. She'll be on later to promo her, her book coming out in the spring, but that specific episode is going to be on the craft of writing Gothic romance. So stay tuned for that. Amazing. Definitely. Thank you. Just a quick aside. What's this thing about the scarred hero that you keep mentioning? Is that, is that a big thing? Oh yeah. I mean, let me just tell you, there's a lot we did not talk about. We have not even started talking about monster romance. We have not started. We have, there's so much we have not talked about, but a scarred hero. Yeah, it's exactly that is what it sounds like. I mean, somebody who may, you know, who's scarred in some way and therefore has like a lot of internalized whatever that, that may, that is the obstacle, I guess, of sorts for that person to overcome because maybe they feel like, they're not worried or or they're worried that the other person, like that they're not worthy of the other person or whatever, or maybe they have their own inhibitions about themselves because of their scar and the other person loves them anyway. It's sort of like Beauty and the Beast. So you'll get a lot of Beauty and the Beast-esque kind of stories with a scarred hero. I was just wondering if it was problematic because it's, you know, there's been such a pushback on scarred villains where, where scarring is seen as a, villainous character trait i wonder whether there was any when we're talking about a scarred person being worthy of love and not just being worthy of love but worthy of being the hero or heroine of a story that's putting a scarred person front and center of of love so there's a bit of a difference yeah sure okay cool last question agatha don't know where's he's gonna go but what truly scares you well, now that I've seen Michael talk about his book, <laughs> like, get that home invasion away from me. <laughs> it's like, I told him, I said, my husband might have to read that first, but I don't even know because our anxiety will be up. You know, um, this, living in Texas where people have guns, like the home invasion thing really freaks me out. Like I, 
yeah, I mean, it's, we're already walking around. Like I can't even, I, you know, this is comes with not just being American, but being Texan too. Like just, I don't go to like market days on our town square anymore, as beautiful and as adorable as our town square is. Like there is going to be a couple of assholes walking around with their AR 15s. Like it's scary. And, and I don't want my child around that. That is perfectly valid. So we've reached the end of the conversation. Like you said, there's a million other things we could have talked about, but you know what? That's what your choice for. So all my listeners go listen to She Wore Black. It will take you on the whole gamut of, of horror, mystery, Gothic and romance. You will come away a better, more rounded reader. And um, yeah. And, and for now, Agatha, I know we're going to record a show for you pretty soon, but yes. thank you for talking scared. Well, thank you for having me. It was a real treat. I love your show. And the fact that you've even, uh, you know, thought that I had something to bring to your show just is really exciting. So thank you. So what that conversation emphasised for me is that there is a real difference between my academic understanding of gothic romance and the contemporary reader's tastes and expectations. It feels like there's a lot of rules governing romantic fiction these days, a lot of rules. And people say that horror is too much for a trope-based genre. I'm still not entirely sure on a modern definition of gothic romance, to be honest. At some points, it seems like the gothic is merely a framing for the more important romance content, whereas at other times it feels like the gothic romance in capital letters is very much its own beast. I think I need to go back and ask Agatha more considered questions to really map out this Venn diagram of horror and gothic and romance and erotica. I'm really grateful she came on to tell me about it, but it feels like something that needs a lot more exploration to to really understand. What do you think? Are you a romance fan? Do you have a theory on how it works within the darker genres? Do you have book recommendations for someone like me who is too often afraid to step too far into the light? Let me know. The email is talkingscaredpod at gmail.com and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at talkscaredpod. And there's also the Patreon, which I'll reiterate here. You can sign up at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod for loads of extra stuff. There really is loads on there now. And it's an even more dedicated and direct way to join the Talking Scared conversation. That's a lot of self-marketing. Makes me cringe. (laughs) Right. I'm aware that this show has taken some odd, interesting diversions recently. We've covered middle grade horror fiction romance this time around and soon I'll be talking about a very strange cross-genre slipstream novella from last year, Flowers for the Sea by Zinni Rocklin. There's a reason for the variety. It was initially a panicked response to cancelling the Joyce Carol Oates interview and because there was a further breakdown of communication with another big name writer and the publicist, they were supposed to be on the show and they weren't and I hope to get them back on very soon. But it left me with episodes to fill. And actually, it's been a complete gift because it's allowed me to pursue some conversations that I wouldn't necessarily have had, roads that may not have been travelled or some books that I may not have read. I really do love making this podcast. (laughs) That said, 
I'm also aware that you like the mainline stuff. And going forwards, through to the end of the year, actually, I'm giving you the headliners. Names like Andy Davidson, Gemma Amore, Hayley Piper, Alexis Henderson, Rachel Harrison, Clay McLeod Chapman and Chuck Wendig, to name just a few. And on top of that A-list of who's who in horror, I do still have some special side missions planned that I think you'll like. If I can pull them off, they'll be quite the coup. So anyway, follow and subscribe, leave a review if you can, and even tell a friend you can't beat the old ear-to-mouth express. I'm back next week with Gwendolyn Keist and her oh-so-groovy intertextual tale of famous women and their infamous monsters, Reluctant Immortals. It's one of the books of the year, take it from me. Until then, enjoy the cooler weather if you get it. Avoid Twitter beefs if you can. Attend the ball at the old manor house. And give love a chance. Read good books. And remember, it's good to be scared.